You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. Welcome to the Sport Horse Podcast. I'm Nicole Lakin. And I'm Tim Warden. And we're going to talk about something a little bit different today. Um, You know, we've been running this podcast for over a year now, and uh, we've been able to create a, a nice little community surrounding us. And I think every Every episode, we engage more and more people, and we're starting to make more and more connections, which is super exciting. Um, Nicole and I are more and more getting people reaching out to us and talking about you know specific topics and starting to ask questions about how do they go and explore something that you know they've been wondering about in the barn, or they may have a question about their horse or maybe their training program, and uh, they're curious about you know what's the next step? How do you you know formulate a question, and once you have that question, how do you go and uh, explore you know, possible solutions to it and, and get that evidence that we need to make the best decisions possible for our horses and for our, our own training program. So yeah, the I think uh, we're going to just try to cover that today in a little bit more detail about uh, Nicole and I, our process, how we go through and, and find the research we do, how do we select uh, experts, how can you select an expert, and uh, yeah, you can start to bring in this information to your own training programs. Yeah, um, we're excited today to do something a little bit different. Um, I I think that one of the things that we sought out to do when we started the podcast a year ago um, was to make information in general more accessible. Um, and so, yeah, that's really the goal of today's episode is to talk about, you know, whenever you have a question or a problem that you want to solve, um, sort of utilizing the resources that are out there that maybe you don't know about quite yet uh, to to find an educated approach to to your problem or your challenge. So, yeah, I think we can kick it off um, <laughs> with uh, I, I we were chit chatting a little bit before starting the episode, and um, Tim shared that he had a sort of a couple ideas that he wanted to focus on today. So, Tim, you want to just kick us off with one of the. Um, things that you think is most important in terms of um, identifying a question um, that you think is worth pursuing the answer on. Yeah. So uh, I, I think that like, we're just surrounded by constant uncertainty in our lives, right? In any in any uh, facet of our, our lives. And for sure, um, as soon as you start dealing with a horse that can't directly speak back and tell us, you know, what they're feeling and what they want to do. And we're trying to interpret all this information that they're going to give off, whether it's, you know, other behavioral cues. So that sort of feedback or whether it's facial expression or how they, how they're standing, maybe their history, you're trying to interpret all that information and decide, you know, what that horse is trying to tell you. And um, so I think when we, start to think about, you know, what's relevant and what we should we pursue. Uh, I think like, the number one thing to think about is to not make things too complex, right? At the end of the day, um, we need to make sure that we're providing, you know, the basic or the necessities of life for our horses. We need to make sure that we're feeding them uh, in the proper way, that they're having access to uh, mental stimulation. They're having access to uh, hopefully turnout so they can get outside and move their bodies, that they're not stuck in a stall all day, all those uh, sorts of things. And so I think that on top of that, we're starting, uh, this is the Sport Horse Podcast, so probably most of our listeners do have horses in work. And so you're starting to think about, okay, how do we actually um, 
put our horses in an, in an environment where we can train them, where we can stimulate their our, the horse's bodies to adapt and to uh, regenerate and to repair themselves to be bigger and stronger and better prepared for competition. Um, and you can see how it you know can quickly become quite overwhelming. There are a lot more factors that are starting to come into into play. And I think one thing that's always interesting, so perhaps uh, you know you have a question about, uh, how much recovery time your horse needs between workouts or how much, or or what should the feeding protocol be for your horse? And I think a really good place to start is just to go to Google and to plug in some of those questions and see what you get back. And I want to preface that by saying that Google, there's a lot of not great information there as well, but what you're looking for, if you do go to Google or some similar uh, search browser, you're looking for experts and people no, names you know well and people you would trust, and you're looking for their comments on it. And then once you have a bit of a sense of about you know what's the current state of the art, so you know if you're a fan of um, you know Isabel Worth or McLean Ward or whoever, they like, try to find and see if they've ever talked about those topics in an interview before. And then once you have a sense about you know maybe what they talk about in their own training programs or how they approach problems, then you can use that as a springboard and you can dive off there and, and go in a little bit more in depth. And then you're looking at potentially going to uh, Google Scholar, which tends to have uh, higher quality evidence. So whether it's from patents or actual peer-reviewed publications or conference abstracts, uh, and you can do a bit of a deeper dive there and look to see you know, what research is being produced. And as well, you can start to... Uh, you know, start to look at uh, what's out there in terms of other experts in the field. So uh, doing or doing searches for um, people who have faculty positions at universities and research institutions and looking to see, is there anyone out there who's studying? Uh, maybe it's, you know, you have questions about gastric ulcers and sort of going down that road. So it's really about trying to find the experts in the field, the people who uh, are well-cited, who you know, people have a lot of respect for them. They're constantly invited to speak internationally on topics, as well as riders who are in the field applying this information and sort of using that as a foundation to uh, to dive into more. So you mentioned Google, you mentioned Google Scholar, you didn't mention ChatGPT, which, you know, curious. But um, <laughs> I'm wondering, like, when it comes to more scientific material, I think you know, it can feel really intimidating. Um, and I think also people don't necessarily know like what is good scientific material and what is, you know, kind of garbage. Uh, so do you have any suggestions on how people can evaluate, um, you know, articles and um, different resources that are, you know, published some in, in scientific publications, but maybe some in not so scientific uh, publications, but are still, you know, sharing interesting sounding information. So how would you go about that? Yeah, for, for sure. It's a really good question. Um, when you're looking at like those peer reviewed scientific publications, it's not perfect, but there are two things you can look at if you have a question about, so maybe you read an abstract or a paper and it sounds really exciting, uh, but you're you know, unsure about the quality of the research and you, you're maybe not sure how to evaluate it. Um, when you look at the the process of getting published, theoretically, there are there are a few checks and balances that every paper that is published goes through. So when a researcher has completed their study and they submit their paper to be published, 
how the first thing that happens is there's initial an, an initial triage. So every journal that's out there has an editorial board. And so the editors are responsible for reading through that manuscript and giving it a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And they're going to do an, an initial assessment and determine is that manuscript worthy of going out for peer review? Or is there some fundamental flaw where they can just drop kick it right away and reject it? And if the editors feel that the paper, paper is promising and it's at least worthy of uh, going out for review, which would be the next step in the publication process, then it'll be sent out usually to two to three experts in the field. So these are people who have published a lot on the topic before. They should have a, a pretty good expertise on the topic, and they're responsible for going through and doing a really deep dive on that paper and making sure that everything written in that paper is is accurate, that the statistics check out, the experimental design is proper to answer the question that is laid out in the publication. Uh, typically, there are a few rounds of revisions where the reviewers will ask the authors to make a couple of changes so that uh, manuscript is uh, set to a higher standard. And then after that, it's also published. And so if you go through Google Scholar, you're looking at papers that have already been published typically. And so your next step would be to determine, like, is that paper, was it published in a good journal with expert reviewers? Or was it maybe published in a lower uh, quality journal that could be a bit easier to access? And so with respect to that, there are two things you can look for. Every journal has an impact factor. So if you search a journal's name and then impact factor, it gives you a bit of a sense of how, uh, you know, just how impactful it is in the field. So are people constantly reading this, the papers published in this journal and uh, citing them? Or if the impact factor is low, it means the journal doesn't get a lot of visibility, which means it's more likely the lower quality papers could end up there just because every journal wants to publish and people always want to publish in the higher impact. So uh, if you can't publish in one of the big journals, you tend to publish in a lower journal. Um, and then on Google Scholar and many other uh, you know, search databases, it'll also tell you how many times people have cited these papers. So how much, how many, how many times these people, how many times are researchers reading these papers and including them in their own papers? And, and that could be a really good, give you a really good sense of um, how impactful it is on the field, how much attention people are paying to it. With, and typically people pay a lot of attention to really good papers. So those are sort of two things you can look for to help screen that as well. That's really helpful um, and a lot to think about. I guess my next question for you would be, let's just say you and I are talking about something that we want to learn about for the podcast. And I decide, you know, that we want to learn about, you know, the most up-to-date science and, and of diagnosing and treating a specific type of disease or injury. Where would you go first to, to try and find our experts and see what the latest science says? Yeah, so like for me, I would probably go to Google Scholar or something like a PubMed or, or similar, uh, and I'd be looking for uh, some of those bigger journals, like the, the journals that tend to have a, a little carry a bit more weight, and see you know who is publishing on this topic rather consistently. Um, and then as well, like usually, if you search certain topics or if you have a general idea of what. The topic falls into so if it's a topic related to physiology or equine biomechanics or cardi cardiology then you can start to look for conferences that may be out there and conferences are another really good way to figure out who is sort of 
you know, popular at the time or who is producing a lot of the cool research because those are usually the people who get invited to speak at conferences. So those would sort of be the avenues you can look at to figure out who those experts are, who's really leading the field at the time. Yeah, that's, I think, really helpful information. Um, and we'll definitely leave some links for you guys in the podcast episode notes so that you know where to go as well. Um, what happens when somebody uh, wants to look outside of our sport, which is something that we highly encourage? Um, I think, obviously, there's a lot more money and research that's happening in sports that are uh, more uh, mainstream. Um, you have a background in Olympic weightlifting yourself um, and also uh, know quite a bit in, about uh, sort of the developments in track and field. Um, so do you have any recommendations both on like ideal sports um, that people should look at for valuable lessons and things to learn that can be applied to equine sports and, um, you know, sport horse management. And um, once you kind of know what sports you want to look at, where do you go to find good material um, referencing those, those sports and the most up-to-date science? Yeah, I, I think one of my, favorite things to do is to think about whatever uh, discipline or sport uh, you and your horse are involved with and to think about what human sport would most closely replicate that. So uh, Nicole and I are predominant, predominantly in the jumper world. So it would make sense to probably look at, you know, maybe sprinting in hurdles, uh, you know, maybe the 400 meter hurdles. You could also think about maybe some other sports that require some change of direction and traveling at speed. So you could almost think about maybe like, you know, giant slalom or alpine skiing for alpine skiing, or maybe like super giant slalom, super G. Um, other sports, you know, polo, you could almost think about maybe hockey would be the, the appropriate uh, uh, parallel for that. And so like, that's a fun thing to do. I would encourage everyone to do that, to think about your own sport, and even your own horse. And if they were a human athlete, what sport would they probably excel at uh, and then sort of once you have that framework then again it's about going and finding those experts and if you're looking for an expert especially on the human side to me the most important thing is looking for coaches and or potentially athletes but predominantly coaches who have had success over many many years with many different athletes uh, it's not it's for sure hard but there are always going to be those you know coaches who have success with one athlete and then they can never replicate it again. And it's, you know, sometimes lightning just strikes, like things align perfectly. And you end up having uh, an amazing athlete who's just put into the right situation and they'll go through and win a, an Olympic gold medal. But I think you're, you always want to learn from the coaches who can work with many different types of athletes. Uh, they've had success over, you know, many, many years. So with different rules uh, imposed on them, because the rules tend to change year to year in, uh, in sport. And I think those are the types of people you want to look for. And then I think the, the one cool thing uh, in human sport is that coaches tend to be a lot more open than trainers typically are in equestrian sport. And so it's a lot more likely that if you search for, you know, a coach that you find that you really like their training program, it's it's quite likely that you'll find something about how they actually build their training programs. So whether it's like a weekly training program or you know, how they build like six month blocks to get their athletes to peak for a major competition or whatever. Like you can usually find that for human athletes. And I would also say like, 
after you've done your research and you feel like pretty comfortable with the content you found, like don't be afraid to reach out to some athletes participating in that sport or maybe some local coaches who coach that sport and just to pick their brains. Um, in my experience, people are typically eager to learn something new as well. So if you reach out to maybe uh, the local track and field coach or the local uh, you know, basketball coach or whatever sport and just say like, hey, like I'm in, you know, question sport like i you know i'm into dressage or i'm into thoroughbred racehorses and i have these questions i think there's some parallels between my sport and your sport for you know these reasons typically they'll probably be curious about it and they'll want to sit down and just have a discussion um i think that is the one every coach is successful because they're curious and they enjoy learning like you don't get to be a successful coach by uh just learning a program and then never asking questions again so you know, coaches are inherently like curious and by nature. So just reach out to them and you can probably learn a lot going through that. Yeah. I have to say, I think that's one of the things that I've grown to admire about you, Tim, is I think we're similar in that we're both a little bit uh, shy and, and reserved, but um, you've built a really amazing network. And, you know, a lot of the experts that we have had on the podcast um, have been available to us as a result of that. Um, also obviously because we have a great team behind us with a great network that's expanded our, our access as well. But, um, maybe you could share a time or a, a specific, um, person who, you know, you did reach out to a little bit, uh, sort of in a, like a, a cold, uh, intro, um, just because you thought that they were doing something that looked impressive and you wanted to learn about it. Um, and you know, a time that that worked out for you um, and maybe something specific that you learned that stuck with you. Yeah. Well, I, I will say I've probably been blocked a couple of times as well. And I, <laughs> I've also gotten a, a fair share of uh, not responses, but um, yeah, like I, I would say like, again, just been incredibly lucky with the people who have, uh, you know, taking the time to sit down and chat with me. There have been a few track and field coaches over the year who have had the opportunity to uh, you know, just pick their brains, I would email them out of the blue and just sort of say, hey, like, I read something you wrote, you know, five, six years ago where I, I listened to a talk you gave and I'm, I'm really curious about a certain points, uh, a few certain points. And they've been willing to sit down and um, like I had uh, one just a couple of weeks ago, actually. Um, someone who's a very, very successful track and field coach and was willing to sit down and just chat a little bit about uh, what we've been up to, what a friend of mine and I are doing with uh, some horses we're working with. And just a, a really, really interesting discussion to hear about, you know, how he ap approaches sport and how and we, we cover just a, a wide range of topics from, you know, talent identification in elite uh, human athletes to, um, like how you actually build those training programs, different recovery modalities that he uses with his athletes. Um, but yeah, like without getting in too much into the weeds of what we covered, um, I, I think, it, and even if, and for sure I learned a lot from those conversations, but even if you don't, I think just learning to talk about your own sport and having to present it in different ways to sometimes to people who are a bit um, you know, not as familiar with the terminology, not as familiar with how the sport actually works. I think going through that process alone forces us to uh, consider things in, a, in different ways and to uh, become better. You better understand it. Um, 
I, I think that's one of the, the things that I learned is like going through grad schools when you'd have to teach uh, undergraduate tutorials and workshops, like you you learn what you actually know versus don't know because you're going to have to explain it 10 different ways to uh, get the majority of the class to understand it. So just becoming comfortable talking about your training program and talking about why you do certain things with certain horses, you'll start to realize like, hey, like I don't actually understand that as well as I thought I did. And that's what, you know, stimulates you to go in and to try to find that answer in a textbook or to find an expert or to listen to a podcast. So yeah, for me personally, I... I love it. I always learn way more from from people, even when I give my own talks, then uh, I think people learn from me just because you're forced to, to dive into it to really understand it. Yeah, I think that's really, you know, hitting the nail on the head. Um, and it sort of leads us into another one of the areas that um, you and I were chatting about when um, we were preparing for the podcast. Um, and uh, that was the concept of being a bit of a barn rat. Um, and putting yourself in a position where you're around to observe, to learn, and to ask questions, and also to take advantage of opportunities that probably wouldn't arise if you weren't, you didn't happen to be around. Um, I think, you know, having myself been a bit been lucky enough to be in that position, especially for kids. I think it's definitely harder for adults, especially adults that um, have jobs you know, maybe outside of the industry, but are still, you know, really passionate about these things. Um, but if you are able to take time um, to be in that that role where you're just kind of around, <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not trivializing it. Like I think um, the way to properly be a barn rat is to is to be around, but to always make yourself busy. Um, so whether that's cleaning tack or setting jumps or um, running for coffees for people, I think there's opportunity in all of it to learn. And speaking from my own experience, and, and then I definitely want to hear from you, Tim, um, you know, I had opportunities to ride horses that I never would have ridden. I had opportunities um, to never miss a vet visit from, you know, any of the amazing vets that, you know, came in regardless of which barn I was in. Um, and you can be a quiet and respectful observer, you know, of of a veterinary exam and build a relationship with the vet that will ultimately afford you the opportunities to ask questions as well. Um, I know that that was huge for me is that I um, built a relationship both with the veterinarians and their techs. Um, I'd say do not sleep on the techs because they are incredibly knowledgeable generally. Um, and also, uh, kind of in control of access to the veterinarian in a lot of cases. So, uh, yeah, don't sleep on those techs and assistants. They're, they're amazing. And, um, you know, doing a lot of important hands-on work. Um, but I also think, I, I think experience and, and we talk about horsemanship and, and the value of, you know, the, the honored, long time, you know, sort of ways into a, of doing things um, that we sometimes discover the science agrees with later on. Um, I think that you can't undervalue that. I, I, it's just so crucial and there's nothing that can replace it. Um, you can read every book and every scientific journal and without the experience, um, you know, you're not going to know how to apply anything. You're not going to understand what it means 
to make any kind of change to um, try something in your program. You're not going to understand the implications both on the horses, but also on all the people. Um, And I think, you know, sport horses are managed by a team. And if you're not thinking about how changes and decisions impact the members of the team, then you're kind of setting yourself up to fail. Um, whether it's because you're physically not able to be there at, at all the time and, and you have to depend on other members of the team to follow the program that you, you know, choose to, to set up for your horse. Um, or whether it's just that you're, not understanding, you know, the burnout and the long hours. And so you're not able to keep people. You're always having turnover and and that's not good for you or your horses. So um, to me, I think the time spent in the barn, observing, being the helping hand. um, I think I've learned more from being on the ground during lessons than I've maybe even learned from being on the back of a horse. Um, And again, you know, if you're lucky, being around affords you more time in the saddle as well. Um, so I, I think that that piece of the puzzle can never really be, um, it, it can never be forgotten. You know, without without the the real life experience, the book smarts and the the scientific research and um, you know the podcasts, uh, I think will fall a little bit flat. You're just kind of a a person who can spout facts at this at that point. Do you, do you agree, Tim? Tim? I almost called yeah. you Tom. Tim. Yeah. No. There we go. There we go. Yeah. I I completely agree. Like it's. I think that's one of the challenges when you do go into the, the scientific literature a little bit is that there are always limitations trying to run these studies that you always need to be aware of. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's incredibly expensive to do um, scientific research. Uh, just that you have horses that are, you know, maybe in. Uh, Maybe they could be uh, external uh, patients, but typically they're in some sort of research herd. So you have to pay all the money to look after those horses. Um, a lot of the tests that we run on the horses are quite expensive. You have all the technicians and all the infrastructure to cover. So it makes these studies really expensive. And the way research institutions tend to counter that, and I don't blame them, it's financial pressure they're under, is they tend to have like small sample sizes. They tend to have horses that aren't in regular work. Uh, there are, are a number of issues that make it challenging to uh, just go and to apply every scientific publication. And so it's really about the ideal world is you have someone with a really strong background with horses who understands the context, that understands why we currently do what we do. And then they can look at a paper and say, like, you know, is the study, like, can it actually be applied to to my barn, to my program, or will it not work? And to be comfortable you know, saying no sometimes and just saying like, hey, like my program uh, is working right now in this facet. Like maybe my horses seem happy to get outside or, or whatever. And I really don't think that this recommendation for this, um, you know, finding from the study can actually be applied to my horses. Um, and I think as well, like you mentioned horsemanship, which is, of course, uh, very important and has been, you know, developed and refined over thousands of years at this point. And I think a really good exercise to go through is to start to think about the history of like why did these practices develop and especially with like you know uh, riding horses having such a military uh history behind it you start to understand you know with respect to cavalry like why did we train horses like why did dressage evolve like why why did all these movements occur 
um, and a lot of it relates back to cavalry and like the same thing with jumping horses. Like, why do we jump horses? Like a lot of it was uh, to an extent, the cavalry guys having a bit of fun uh, with the, the, their horses and their partners. Um, you know, fox hunting for sure has translated into a lot of sports, uh, you know, racing. So like understanding the historical context, maybe why equipment was developed the way it was, why we do certain things with the horses, I think can actually really help to broaden our understanding. Um, I wish there was a really good history textbook or really like good historical reference. I don't think there really is anything. It's probably like just hidden in different locations, but um, I think that would for sure be worthwhile. And then just, yeah, circling back to the barn rat components. I remember like having conversations with Ian Miller, the Canadian show jumping uh, rider and now chef to keep about this. And like, we always would have discussions about like, why don't more people like hang out at the warm up ring at shows as well. Like the shows are a great learning environment. If you take the time to do it, um, you know, if you're done with your horse and the horse is put away and everything's good, but you can't go home for another two hours, maybe your ride, you have to sit around and wait for that. Like why not go to the warm up ring and just watch what other people are doing and you know, why do they jump? Why does one rider jump 10 jumps in the warm up ring versus one rider maybe jumps 15 and they try to understand all of that and break that down. I think, you know, there's so much that can be learned at shows from you know, being off your horse and even being away from your training, just trying to independently go out and learn. I think you you learn so, so much. Yeah, absolutely. I think my favorite, one of my, hmm, there's a lot of favorite parts, but my one of my favorite parts about being a working student, you know, one of my responsibilities on some show days was to sort of make sure that the head trainer sort of knew where to be and shown up at the right place at the right time. Um, and that meant I spent a lot of time in schooling areas and setting jumps. Um, and you start to see different patterns emerge. Obviously, that's I'm talking in the context of one trainer, but it also gave me uh, the opportunity to observe a lot of other people and, and what they were doing. And then maybe to ask the trainer that I was working with, um, you know, oh, why, what, what is, what's the purpose behind that? Um, and so I, I think that you get the opportunity to to see um, some sort of trends and try and figure some stuff out for yourself, but also just don't be afraid to ask questions. Obviously, like in the heat of competition, timing can be an important factor there um, in terms of like, is it okay to, you know, ask a question or should I let him or her stay focused on what they're doing? But um, yeah, there's just so much to to learn from observing and, and being there. Um, you mentioned also, uh, re- you, you talked a little bit about research and the sort of shortcomings of research uh, when it comes to equine athletes. Um, and I think that's actually a really nice segue to talk a little bit about a project that we're involved in um, and that we would love for our listeners to know a little bit more about just in case um, it does you don't, do co- come across it soon. If not, we hope that it's going to have a really big impact for you down the road. Um, but as part of the Equine High Performance Sports Group, we've developed uh, a registry. It's called the Equine Clinicians Registry, and it's ultimately designed to complement the types of academic research that are happening and are producing really valuable information, um, but also to fill in the gaps that Tim mentioned. So we're focused right now on the use of orthobiologics and regenerative medicine to treat horses both with injuries and also with um, sort of performance limiting problems. Um, 
So uh, orthobiologics and regenerative therapies are an alternative to what was used a lot in the past and is still used now and still has a lot of value, which is corticosteroids. Um, there's been a lot of research to show that the repeated use of steroids in joints and, um, you know, other places in, in athletes, both human and equine, um, can have some long-term negative effects. Um, and our group is really interested in e increasing the longevity of the careers of an equine athlete. So we want them to be healthy and happy and able to do their job for as long as possible. Um, so the registry is designed to collect real data on real clinical cases. So what vets are out there doing on actual athletes, um, every single patient whose data is captured uh, requires Con informed consent to be obtained from the horse's owner or caretaker. So um, you don't have to worry that your your horse's data is going somewhere without you knowing about it. That's an important thing to note. Um, the data is also, you know, only meant to be used uh, in, in aggregate and, and without any identifiable, and identifiable information. So no one would ever be able to trace anything back to um, you or your horse. Um, but the hope in both being able to collect this information across many, many veterinarians treating horses in lots of different disciplines, lots of geographical locations, is that we can learn more about how these products are actually working on different diagnoses. Um, so we're trying to sort of bring the science and the experience together um, along with the academic research to make sure that veterinarians have all the information that they need to choose the right treatments for their patients. Um, that's really the goal. I think the other really cool thing about it is that it's hopefully going to support the need for more academic and more, more um, clinical research in specific areas um, by identifying trends and um, sort of opportunities um, or maybe starting to show, you know, that nothing is really working well on a specific type of diagnosis or something's working exceptionally well on a specific type of diagnosis. So there's just so much, um, so much to be learned. Um, and so we're really exciting. It's still in the early, early stages, but um, we're, we've got some real enthusiasm around it. Um, and, you know, I feel pretty lucky to be a part of it um, because I think it's really going to have really massive impact long-term for the practice of, of veterinary sports medicine um, and for sport horses in general. Um, there's stuff like that happening like this, that's happening on the human side already. So um, it's, we're sort of doing what we always do and following a couple of years behind. Um, but it's, it's definitely exciting that it's happening. Um, you know, we've heard from so many people how hard it is to actually build this, do this, and and then follow these cases over a long period of time. And um, we do understand and appreciate all the challenges, but we're really committed and we have a good team behind us. And um, so I think that it, it'll be exciting, you know, a couple years from now to look back and, and see, see what we've been able to uncover. Um, yeah. Tim, any, anything to add? Yeah, no, uh, I was just going to say, like, it's for sure a, a really impressive amount of work that's been completed to date. And I would just encourage everyone to, uh, like, just think about 
the opportunity to give back um, with like the horse you do have in your care. Um, like when I was going through grad school, uh, we were always expected to be participants in uh, different studies. Like as a grad student, I was probably uh, a participant in or a study subject in uh, probably like 10 or 15 different projects going on and you just become comfortable with the idea of giving back. So how do you put yourself in a position where uh, you can participate in something? It can be used for the greater good, essentially. And I think more and more uh, projects like this are going to come along and people will be asking, like, hey, would you be willing to have your horse participate in this study? And it's an opportunity to, uh, without having information like directly given out about your horse, it can be put into a larger database, aggregated, and then this information can maybe help horses, you know, 5, 10, 15 years down the road. So I think it's something that everyone should become a bit more comfortable with and hope to contribute to. Um, with that, I think we're, we're running out of time. Nicole, I'll maybe pass it off to you for some last thoughts. Yeah, I don't know. I, I hope that this was helpful. Um, I think that our, again, our goal is to remind everybody that um, in the time of the internet, like there are just so many resources available. But again, as as we've talked about a little bit, it's really important to take advantage of all those resources, but also to evaluate them and make sure um, that they're worthy resources. I, I'll also say that, you know, there are a lot of trainers out there, like like Tim said, and, and a lot of sports that'll have, you know, sort of one big successful um, horse or one big success, successful student's student and there's for sure things to learn there but i think the people and um the athletes and the coaches um and to some degree um the scientific experts um out there that you know really merit and have sort of earned uh the respect and the the um worthiness of us following them and trying to learn from them are those that can can repeat it um, so I think that's a really nice rule of thumb that you mentioned. Um, nobody's perfect. Um, and that's scientists, that's coaches, that's horses. Um, but I think that there's always something to learn. Um, sometimes it's what's, what not to do, but, um, that can be really valuable too. I always tell, um, whenever, whenever I get a question from somebody about, you know, how, how did I sort of figure out what I wanted to do career wise and how did I get here? Um, I said, honestly, I do what I, what I, I did what I recommend a lot of people. I had ideas of what I thought I might want to do, but really not, not a clear idea of where I wanted to end up. So I just started trying things and crossing them off the list until um, I sort of got to a place where I realized that it was something that was interesting, that had a lot of room to grow um, and a lot of opportunities. And um yeah, I think I think you can never um never uh waste time even if it's crossing something off your list. Uh so with that, we appreciate you guys all tuning in. Um we'll be back with our next episode with an expert as per usual, but uh we hope that you enjoyed this conversation today. Uh you can find the links uh well, we'll we'll put our um you know, social media and stuff and some of the links we talked about today in the show notes at www.sporthorsepodcast.com. If you like this episode or any of our other episodes, please follow us, like us, subscribe, um, share us with your friends. 
You can have all 20 plus shows of the Horse Radio Network with you wherever you go with our free app for iPhone and Android. And just go to the App Store and search for Horse Radio Network. And here's to keeping your sport horse happy and healthy.